Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio Podcasts. This podcast is focused on what's next on the IO radar. Top 10 recommendations from City's expert analyst, Dr. Andrew Baum, from the 2022 Amino Oncology 360 Summit. For more information about the Amino Oncology 360 Summit, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit io360summit.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. It's a privilege for um, yet another year to um, address some of the key moving parts in a dynamic area of immuno-oncology. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I uh, run City's Global Healthcare Research, and over the last decade or so, we've taken a profound interest in the impact of immuno-oncology on patients and, of course, on the, the sponsors within the industry. Um, in the next 20 minutes, I'm going to talk to a very wide array of topics. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have time to go into very much detail, but hopefully it'll precipitate discussions. And of course, uh, we're more than welcome to, uh, you're more than welcome to follow up with us uh, to dig into any of the individual topics in detail. So I've titled this report, Immuno-Oncology Moves Into the Second Age. And that really reflects um, the evolution um, away from PDL1 and CTLA4, which obviously marked the enormous breakthrough uh, 10 years ago or so, to now an expanding array of um, approved and potentially approvable checkpoint and, and other agents working through the IO access. So uh, we're going to address um, four key areas in the next um, 15 to 20 minutes or so. Um, first, a look to the past. What did we learn in the last 12 months? Second, some of the emerging dynamics around the immuno-oncology landscape. Uh, thirdly, some of the key catalysts uh, and the regulatory and commercial implications uh, over the next 12 to 24 months. And then finally, my uh, annual update of uh, the top 10 targets that we see uh, within the IO landscape. So starting with the past and the winners and losers, um, and again, um, it's a rather sensational title, but nothing's ever quite as binary as that, but it's, it's useful buckets um, to run through them very quickly. Uh, obviously, the adjuvant promise with uh, PD-1, PDL one antagonists has held up with phase three data and approvals for um, breast cancer, as well as um, triple negative breast cancer, as well as non-small cell lung cancer. And we now more recently have new adjuvant non-small lung cancer with um, Opdivo. Uh, LAG3 is uh, after a long wait, the next checkpoint uh, to demonstrate a material improvement in, in outcomes and has very recently been approved again by Bristol. Um, ADCs, uh, and I think this is really just beginning. We've obviously very recently seen um, transformative uh, data from in HER2, and we haven't seen the magnitude of the benefit, but I'm expecting it to be transformative in patients with low HER2 expression. Um, this is a antibody drug conjugate. Uh, we have Tridelvi on the market, and uh, uh, there's further uh, ADCs coming, including targeting BCMA, among other targets. And then Equally of interesting, but perhaps a little less high profile, are the bispecifics um, and or bifunctional, the TCRs, TCR receptors. And this includes an uh, almost never-ending stream of CD20, CD3 molecules from multiple sponsors, um, a uh, BCMA CD3, 
uh, as well as um, the Immunocore TCR against GP100. Uh, again, I, this is just scratching the surface of some of the most advanced compounds in the field. There are plenty more uh, targets uh, in multifunctional, not just bifunctional molecules that are working their way through pipelines. And then finally, Tigit, and I hesitate to put this in the winners group because, of course, we're still awaiting phase three data. Uh, as we'll talk about a little bit later, we've been very vocal on the potential of TIGIT or TIGIT um, as a transformative checkpoint in non-small cell and potentially other indications. We had some very promising phase two data. Uh, we're expecting the phase three data across multiple indications this year, and it's gonna be one of the key events for the sectors we'll, we'll talk to in a, in a second. And then in terms of where there's disappointments, um, ICOS, so the, the, the co-stimulatory molecule uh, prosecuted by GSK and, uh, and JOUNT, GSK phase three was uh, unfortunately negative. Uh, TGF beta, uh, Merck KGA, uh, GSK collaboration, uh, again, didn't pan out on this um, complicated target. And then finally, there's been trials stopped due to toxicity uh, with CAR-T, and it's the balance of therapeutic efficacy versus um, on-target uh, tox. So that's a kind of very brief overview of where we have been. Um, these are some of the topics that I'm going to talk to, um, and I'll, I'll just touch on the headlines. So the changing landscape in the FDA as it relates to oncology trials, um, the inevitability of the need for synthetic immunity, uh, such as CAR-Ts or TCRTs or bispecifics to address the immune-excluded landscape, the rise of the ADCs, um, the collapse of biotech valuations, and the commercial need of the sector to uh, embrace deals in order to address the loss of exclusivities they face within their portfolio. So this should really prime you in directionally of, of where we're focused um, from the financial side. So to start with perhaps the most pressing, and I doubt I need to tell anyone in this room, uh, the dramatic change in the landscape in the public markets for biotech valuations. And it's been a a collapse uh, in valuations, and you can see the indexes as more than a half peak to trough. Um, the IPO and SPAC window uh, is well and truly closed as of now, which is in sharp contrast to where we were in Q3 last year, where you had companies going public uh, pre-IND um, on really very little data, but yet attracting significant pools of capital. Um, the world has shifted. Um, it may well go back to that point, but we're not there now. Now, this obviously leaves some companies with an issue in that how do you raise capital um, if you can't go in the public markets? Well, there are alternate capital providers, uh, companies such as Royalty Pharma or private equity companies like Blackstone, but the more traditional route is obviously through large cap pharma. And um, we expect a material uptick in BD as we get towards the second half of the year, uh, driven by the need of large cap pharma to um, start to replace the enormous burden of patent expirations they face from 2026 through to 2033. And the data can really be cut multiple ways, looking at the exposure to uh, older products facing loss of patents um, relative to what these companies have in their pipelines. Um, 
Here, the dark bar represents the US peak pipeline as a percentage of US 2020 sales. And then the light blue bar is um, the peak sales from products facing exclusivity as a percentage of 2020 sales. And the delta between the two shows the size of the whole. It's just one way of showing it. You would have seen similar data, but this is aggregates it across a very long time period. And what you see is a very, very heavy exposure for the industry as a whole, but particularly for the companies, the multinationals on the left of the spectrum. So Bristol, Avvi, um, Merck and Pfizer, uh, where they have significant erosion within their portfolio. Now, before going off this point, um, the one barrier that um, we have called out in terms of the pace of m activity is the role of antitrust and the FTC, which is becoming increasingly muscular under the leadership of a um, young lawyer called Lena Khan, who has taken a far more combative approach in what she considers anti-competitive. And we were very fearful that this is going to be a material roadblock to delaying completion or even the closure of some of these um, future transactions. Uh, Importantly, uh, a couple of days ago, um, the... Uh, closure of Arena was announced by Pfizer, um, which is important because we were very concerned that this would be uh, track significant scrutiny from the FTC because of potential anti-competitive nature of the transaction given some of Pfizer's existing products and Arena's products. And it seemingly went through with very, very little friction. So this bodes very, very well, and I think is uh, gonna be looked at very closely by a number of competitors who'll be worried about antitrust. The second thing which um, always happens when um, the biotech sector takes a a downdraft is it does take some time until the valuations which sellers are willing to um, countenance in selling their companies adjust to the new market environment. And many of these companies are very well funded due to previous capital raises. So I expect the increase in BD and the intensity to start to increase at the back end of the year rather than right now, despite the correction in the market. So moving on, um, 2021 and I think increasingly 2022 is is the year of the ADCs. And what I've done here is basically just clip some of the headlines from press releases of some of the very significant readouts. And I've mentioned one already, which was the Destiny Bresto 4 trial which is a trial of AstraZeneca, Daiichi's and HER2 in patients with HER2 low metastatic breast cancer. And obviously this market is double the size of the HER2 market. We haven't seen the full data. Um, We expect it's gonna be presented as a late breaker at ASCO, but the body language from the company is a very, very significant benefit in an area where Herceptin, naked Herceptin, trastuzumab, um, did not provide any benefit. There is also um, benefit been shown by the combination of INHER2 together with um, Keytruda, so PD-1 in gastric cancer and early stage trials. So for those of you who would argue that um, an ADC is not truly immuno-oncology, which uh, I'm not sure I agree with, um, clearly the potentiation through the co-administration of Keytruda fits that box. You saw the earlier data from Destiny Bresto 3 in patients who um, are refractory um, to uh, Herceptin and show benefit compared to uh, Consider, the Roche ADC. And then other ADCs from the Daiichi pipeline 
uh, the TROP2, and we have data from um, Tradelvi as well. And then we also have uh, Theranostics from the Vartis' pipeline. And all these drugs are en route to be combined with checkpoint inhibitors to further potentiate the potential activity. As I mentioned in my opening comments, um, it's been 10 long years since um, PD-1, PDL one and CTLA-4 have been joined by a um, novel checkpoint antagonist. And, and we had this this year with Relatumab, the, the lag three from Bristol Myers Squibb. Um, we've seen um, benefit in um, metastatic melanoma. Uh, with a superior tolerability profile to um, yervoi epilimumab combinations, um, albeit with a little lower efficacy. The question is, to what extent can LAG3 have activity beyond melanoma and their trials going on in other settings, uh, given that melanoma is a relatively well-circumscribed patient population and it will cannibalize that company's own sales of, of yervoi? Adjuvant. Uh, we've got a couple of trials here. Um, the first one in non-small cell, the second one in triple negative breast cancer, um, demonstrating uh, the promise that a absence of a um, tumor burden and a tumor microenvironment should translate into a very meaningful benefit in delay and recurrence. And indeed, that's exactly what we saw in both those indications. Um, and you have approval for uh, uh, both um, T-centric as well as Keytruder within their settings. So stepping back and looking more broadly at the industry, um, some of you will have seen this article that was published in the New England Journal um, sometime uh, before the new year by Richard Pazda, the, uh, the head of the oncology division of CEDA. And um, it came in advance and it was a sort of early warning of the outcome of the FDA panel meeting on Lilly Innovance PD-1 antagonist, Tyvet. And the name really tells it all, but um, it's important to pull apart the um, commentary. And Dr. Pazda makes a number of points. Um, the first one, which attracted the majority of the attention, is that um, having a trial solely represented by one ethnic group or one demographic is no longer acceptable. And um, this is a relatively new theme, uh, which we've seen appear recently at multiple conferences. And it was particularly relevant given the um, threat or the opportunity, depending on how you look at it, of multiple fast follower oncology drugs being developed in China, but of course in trials with 100% ethnically Chinese patients with an absence or Caucasians or black or other ethnic groups. And um, Tyvet was an example of this and it had a very negative panel meeting. The drug was not approved and there's implications for other companies who are hoping to leverage drugs developed in China using China data sets. And it looks like this very significant change of outlook from Dr. Pasta is going to close those doors unless the data is supplemented. Um, we think that it's a little bit more complicated than that. I think the European regulators are going to take a much more sympathetic view where there is a cost advantage for them just because of the pressure that exists on budgets. I expect my country, the UK, to embrace some of the these um, fast follower drugs from China, given the price point that they plan to be introduced at. Um, I also think there's a difference between trials such as Tyvet, which didn't select for a biomarker, 
and trials using small molecules, which are biomarker selective. So I wouldn't want to extrapolate this point, but it's very clear the bar has gone up in terms of um, the diversity of the patient group. Separate from that, there was commentary made about the integrity of the, the trials that Tybert faced. In this particular review from Dr. Pazda, he calls out companies using single-arm trials and the inadequacy of those companies um, in seeking approval. And he's pointing to cervical cancer with PD-1 with a recent sponsor. Um, and there's a number of other examples, but the bar has definitely gone up. And this should pose food for thought for anyone seeking to enter the U.S. market um, perhaps taking advantage of a more benign accelerated approval outlook that existed in the past. So moving forward, um, what are the next, um, the big trial readouts for the next 12 months? Um, well, I've highlighted um, you know, three here. There are others, but these are probably the three big ones that institutional investors are focusing on. Uh, Novartis' canakitumab has already failed two phase three trials. Uh, this is NIL1-beta. Um, the one outstanding is Canopy A, which is in the adjuvant non-small cell lung setting. Um, looking at the um, trial, which was a cardiovascular trial, which triggered this extensive development program, the signal that they saw in that trial is probably most relevant to Canopy A. So the prior we would put on for success in Canopy A is greater than the other two trials. The question is that this market already now has a treatment option in the form of PD-1, PD-L1 antagonists. Um, and so even if the trial is successful, it's not clear that canakinumab is really going to be able to carve out a significant niche, particularly when there is a risk of zoster and some other associated um, adverse events. Um, but it is potentially a big market, but expectations are low for the reasons I gave. Uh, Bristol Nectar's Bempeg, so um, IL-2, IL-2B is, is uh, phrase three is reading out in multiple indications. Um, I would note that Bristol has been noticeably quiet about expectations um, for Bempeg, very different from the time where they inked the deal uh, with Nectar. Um, and the absence of single agent activity, many remember compared to um, IL-2 is something which has raised eyebrows. And then, um, as I'll come on to, Roche's tirabolumab, and that's probably the most significant readout. Just to remind you, this is a ticket or TIGIT monoclonal antagonist. Um, we had a very promising phase two trial. There are um, four trials reading out this year. Uh, the two most important ones are Skyscraper 02, which is coming imminently, um, and Skyscraper Nero 01. Those two trials are in small cell and in non-small cell. Um, we also get cervical and gastroesophageal junction uh, in the second half of this year. So um, coming to um, TIGET, um, we uh, made a very bold call uh, over two years ago now on TIGET uh, based on um, some of the preclinical data uh, and the emergent science um, that this potentially could be the next transformative checkpoint inhibitor. And Roche um, shortly afterwards announced that their phase two trial had um, demonstrated a material improvement in uh, response rate, uh, and they were going to go forward in phase three in multiple indications, um, both small cell and non-small cell being the two most important indications. Um, the phase two cityscape trials in non-small cell first line um, in all comers um, but there was an analysis done in PDL1 high that was pre-specified. 
And uh, what it showed is, with further follow-up, a significant improvement in response rate um, in PFS um, and at uh, 12 months overall survival. Um, and the durability of survival, uh, the durability response was 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 strong and, and significant. Um, the benefit, however, uh, was all in the PDL1 high subgroup. So there's no benefit in patients with PDL1 expression between 1 and 49, which raised some eyebrows. Um, as I mentioned before, there's no single agent activity with TIGIT. Um, and then the control arm on this trial looked um, materially inferior to what we're seeing for PDL1 performance in other contemporary trials. Uh, but because this is a randomized control trial, um, and because of the consistency of the results, we think it's a very real phenomenon. And we um, have become more comfortable with the lack of response in uh, PDL1, 1 to 49 patients, um, as further work emerges on the biology. And there's a very nice paper in Cell that was very recently published by um, Ara Melman, who is the head of immunology, immune oncology at, uh, at Genentech as many of you will know, um, talking to the synergistic activity between these two signaling pathways. Um, and it's, it's a good read if you haven't seen it already. So we've covered most of these points um, already. Um, the one area that we haven't spoken about is small cell. And this is going to be the first trial that reads out um, imminently. Uh, we made the point when we published our TIGIT, We Totally Dig It report that the company had thrown themselves into a small cell trial in combination with chemo uh, in the first line without having any clinical data whatsoever. And I think this was trial was driven as much by um, wanting to avoid the risk that Merck was going to eat their lunch as they did with Keytruda as it was by the science. But there is science to suggest that you have high expression levels of um, CD226 and um, this potentially lends itself to why this combination should be active and potentiate PD-1 in this setting. Um, but it is a challenging setting. It's a heterogeneous disease. Expectations in financial markets are really pretty low. In contrast, because of the phase two data for non-small cell, which is coming in the second quarter this year, expectations are really high. If the small cell trial is positive, not only it would be a pleasant surprise because this is clearly uh, an indication that people, uh, investors are circumspect about in showing benefit from TIGIT, but it would also validate the potential combination of chemo, pdl one and TIGIT in addressing tumors with um, lower pdl one expression, uh, which right now is not an investor's forecast. I'm going to highlight just a couple of interesting sets of data, which may have passed um, some of you by um, because the sponsors are smaller. So this is uh, an IL-15 um, that is now in the hands of Immunity Bio. Uh, it's got the code name N803. Um, it's a molecule that I followed for many years, and it's a very interesting target through hitting the beta and the gamma subunits and avoiding the alpha. Um, and the data showed some really very nice responses and CRs in um, vesicular cancer that was BCG refractory and it was given in combination with BCG. The sponsor has uh, two large phase three trials ongoing, one in bladder cancer, one in non-small cell lung cancer, but an interesting target and an interesting asset. So then to round up finally, um, the update of our top 10 targets um, for uh, 2021 and updated for 2022. So 21 you see on the left, 
um, led unsurprisingly by Tijic, given our stance. And we'll find out whether the optimism is misplaced or whether we were ahead of the curve very, very shortly. Um, TGF Beta, uh, where you had, you know, since the, the disappointment with the Merck KGA compounds, and then you can read the list and, and go down. And so given the incremental data we've got and the data that's coming and the emergent science, this is the update for this year. So um, we remain optimistic on TIGIT until proven otherwise, given the emergent data. I think the ADC data is pretty extraordinary. And I think particularly with the low HER2 is going to reshape the um, algorithm for treatment of metastatic breast cancer. Um, I think the emergent data on um, macrophage time, and obviously there's many ways you can repolarize macrophages, um, is, is, is very interesting. Um, and it's sort of taken over from Treg depletion as being a sort of key area of focus. And some of the early data from targets such as ILT4, uh, which is uh, Merck has, are intriguing. Um, not giving, throwing in the towel on TGF beta, it's just a very, very complex molecule. Um, to to address and it, its role differs in the process of uh, metastatic disease, but I think properly targeted, it could be transformative to address the immune excluded um, tumor types. And then IL fifteen, well, I gave you one previously, the the N eight hundred three, but IL two, IL fifteen, it's really part of the same sort of um, receptor complex. Uh, and then I'll I'll let you go down to the bottom of the page. So before I um, round out and, and pass it back to um, James, um, I just want to highlight uh, um, uh, Mac Cheever, who very sadly passed away this year. So Mac on the left and, and Holbrook were two of the individuals in um, academia who really highlighted um, to me the enormous magnitude of the transformational change that immunology was going to make um, for, for, for patients as well as for sponsors. This must be 12 years ago, and I benefited enormously from um, their time and insights, and we became friends. Uh, Mac ran the Cancer Immunotherapy Network. He was uh, a prof oncology at the Hutch. Uh, Holbrook was at Stanford, and both of the individuals, I'm sure, are very well known to those of you in the room. But I just wanted to call out and remember their you know, personal, but also broader contributions to the space. So on that, I'll stop and uh, uh, hand it back to James. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Amino Oncology 360 Summit, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit io360summit.com. Thank you.